if you would this morning, grab a Bible and open it up to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 73 this morning. Back in September, we began a new series on the attributes of God, and we're still in that series, plugging along. And our goal in this series has been to to look out and see our God. Who is this God that we worship? So we've been learning new words along the way, and in Psalm 73, we're going to get another word that we can use to describe who our God is and what he is like. So we're going to read the whole of Psalm 73 this morning, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of our God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory." Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we lift up our hearts to you and we magnify you. You are good. Truly, God is good to Israel. You've been so good to us. We've tasted your goodness again and again, and we anticipate this morning to experience your goodness one more time. So we pray this morning, would you work on our hearts with your word? Would you change us and transform us? Would you grow us up in Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Life in this fallen world is difficult and hard. And so life in this fallen world is often very disorienting. If we can use our imaginations this morning to think about life in this fallen world, I think we could liken life in this fallen world to a washing machine. 
You get tossed into the washing machine, you get spun about in the washing machine, you get turned around and bumped and knocked and jostled, and with all the tossing and spinning and turning and bumping and knocking, something happens. You start getting dazed and confused, you start getting dizzy and bewildered, and all of this has an effect over time when the spin cycle is turned on. You're going around and around and around, and often the result is this. Some of the most basic things in this life become confused and hard to understand. Who am I? Who is God? What is God like? And this washing machine-like experience is nothing new. The man who wrote Psalm 73 was a man who got tossed in, spun about, turned around, knocked and bumped. He was a man familiar with confusion and dizziness and bewilderment. He was a man confronted with all of these questions of life. And he describes his experience to us in Psalm 73 with words and and phrases that we can easily understand and relate to. Look at verse 2. He says, speaking of his experience, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. We can relate to verse 2. Imagine hiking a steep trail and up you're going. And the gravel and the rocks start to give way, and as they give way, so do you, and you start to go back down the hill. Or, or even worse, you're hiking up that steep hill, and you, you plant your foot, and your ankle gives out, or your knee gives out, and you just go over. He goes on describing his experience in verse 16. He's, he's trying to use his mind to understand all that's going on around him, and he says, this is a wearisome task. His mind is agitated. He's vexed. This just wasn't an intellectual problem. This was something that went to his heart. Look at verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. We can see that this man was deeply affected, translating into terms we would use all the time. He was sick to his stomach with what was going on. And maybe to use another image, it's like someone took a pin and stuck it right into his heart. He could feel the pain of it all. So as we assess Psalm 73 and this man who wrote it, this man was clearly feeling it. The feelings were going. And as we look at this psalm and this man, we have to ask why. What has caused all of this? What has turned the washing machine on for him? Well, the answer is this. He saw a discrepancy. Let me try to describe it to you. This man devoted himself to the Lord and to the ways of the Lord. He, he pushed aside temptation. He said no to sin. We get a sense of this in verse 13. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He, he then went on to discipline himself in godliness, devoting himself to the rigors of, of righteous living. Verse 14, he, he says of his life, for all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But here's the thing. This man devoted his way to this way of life, pursuing it, doing it, and it seems it didn't get him anywhere. As we survey the psalm, we see this man devoted to godliness, but as we survey the psalm, it seems that he lacks all good things. He just doesn't have good. And As we assess this, surely this was a trial for the psalmist, but as we think about it, this can be a trial that can be endured. But what makes this situation intolerable for the man who wrote Psalm 73 was what he saw in other people. He was experiencing this himself, but then he looked out at the world and he saw something. What did he see? Well, he looked at the wicked. So he looked at those who who denounced the Lord and they, they said things like this, verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? 
And he's looking out and he sees, and he sees very clearly those who are, are doing wicked things. They, they feel no shame about it. In fact, they are proud about what they do. They, they wear it as a badge of honor. Verse 6, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And so the psalmist is, has his eyes fixed upon the wicked. And what do the wicked get? And as the psalmist consults every earthly metric, he sees they get this. Good. Good. Lots of good. They prosper, verse 3. They don't suffer pain. They don't experience trouble. They're full. They are are satisfied, verse 4, verse 5. He sums up his assessment of them as he's looking at their way of life, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. This man is perplexed. The godly, this man lacks all good. The, The wicked... He's watching them. They have all good. And to make matters worse, God who is good, supposedly so, seems to be okay with all that is happening down below on earth. He doesn't intervene. He's not taking the side of the righteous. So what's happening to the psalmist here as we're working through this psalm? Well, the washing machine is turned on and this man is getting spun about and turned around and knocked around. And the result of all of this spinning is we see he begins to question the most basic facts of all. Who am I? Who's God? What's God like? But here's the interesting thing about this man in this psalm. And it's an important thing we need to key in on. This man didn't slip. He nearly slipped. This man was tempted to turn his back on the Lord, but he didn't. And and the question we have to ask as readers of the text is why? Why? And the answer is this. He saw something of the Lord. Look at verses 16 and 17. The psalmist describes this important experience. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And here's the key. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then... Then I discern their end. So what happened here? It was seeing God for the psalmist that put an end to all of the spinning and turning. Seeing God steadied his soul and it put an end to all of the dizziness and the disorientation that this man was was feeling. You just see him working it through. What will happen to the wicked? They will perish. What about all of their good? It's going to vanish. Is the Lord absent from all of this? No, not at all. The Lord is upholding him and sustaining him. Is the Lord against him and working against his good? No, not at all. He is for the godly. He is for them all the way, and he will never forsake the godly. And the psalmist gains precious clarity, and we see it at work in his soul. But in this seeing, he sees something else, something more. He sees the bedrock upon which all of this is built. He sees this. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. And really, this is the whole point of the psalm. And this is what the psalmist really needed to see of the Lord. And so the psalmist repeats this truth to us as he is singing his psalm to to Israel. He he begins his psalm with this word. He says, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he concludes his psalm meditating on the goodness of God and how it applies to his soul. He says, verse 28, but as for me, It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. What did he see? He saw God is good. That's the doctrine that stabilized his soul. God's goodness stopped all the spinning and all of the turning. And the same is true for us. If we want to navigate this world, 
And I'll get tossed into the spin cycle, becoming disoriented and dizzy. We too must see the goodness of God. Above all, we need to be a people acquainted with the goodness of God. And so that's our doctrine this morning as we work through the attributes of God. God is good. God is good. So what do we mean by the goodness of God as we try to wrap our minds around this great doctrine? The goodness of the Lord. Now, right from the beginning, as we try to think about this doctrine, we we encounter a problem. And the problem in studying this doctrine is the word we use to describe it. God is good. Just think about some of the words we've used in this series to describe God and who he is. We've used words like incomprehensible, ase, immutable, eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, sovereign, omniscient. Think about those words. We don't use them in everyday conversation. If I were to come to you after the service and chat with you and I said, omnipotent, your mind would automatically run where? Right to the Lord. But the word good is a hard word because it's a normal and ordinary word. It doesn't stand out like those other words. For example, ask any guy how his day went. Perhaps your husband comes home from work and you ask him, how was your day? What does he say? Invariably he says, good. And if it was a really good day, he might say with some expression, it was very good. And if it was a bad day, he might say, ah, it was pretty good. I grew up on a job site with my dad and invariably you would hear a phrase throughout the day as men were working on the house and on the project. They would say something like, ah, that's good enough. You'd hear that over and over again. That's good enough. Good enough. And this is the problem with this doctrine. With the other words, right from the get-go, we see the uniqueness and the beauty of our God. But with this word good, we can't see the beauty right away. Good is a ho-hum, ordinary, workhorse sort of word, and we just use it over and over and over again. So this means if we want to see the excellence of God's goodness, we're going to have to work hard so that we might see how unique God is in his goodness. Now, what is helpful is this problem that we have with the word good is not a, a unique problem for us. This is a problem that has been experienced throughout the history of the church. And so, so godly theologians have worked hard so that God's people might see and taste the unique goodness of the Lord. And, and so what I want to do is I want to go and I want to lean on someone who worked hard on this doctrine. So a man by the name of Augustine wrote about God's goodness. And I want to give you a paragraph from what he wrote. And so just listen to this. He says this, God alone is immutably good. He alone is the good of all good. He alone is the cause of all goodness for all things that are good. The Lord is good, but not as the things that he made are good. He made heaven and earth and all that is in them good. He himself is properly good, the good from which everything else is good, for he himself made all things good. He himself is good. He whom no one made, he himself is good, not by his own, he himself is good by his own good, not by a good imparted from anywhere else. He does not need anyone by whom he might become good, but other things need him so that they might become good. So there's a paragraph, and I think it's really helpful and clarifying, and it's a mouthful. If you're listening, Augustine says good 18 times in that paragraph. He's defining good, he's modifying good, he's specifying good, he's taking up the word good and he's turning this way and that way. And if you tracked it all with what he was saying about God and his goodness, you can see that that Augustine is working so hard and he's trying to paint a picture so that we might see God's unique goodness in particular detail. 
He's working so hard that we might see God for who he is. And so what I want to do for a good chunk of our time this morning is work away at that paragraph and show you three particulars of God's goodness that we might really see God in his goodness. And so the first particular we need to draw out from that paragraph is this. God is himself good. So God is himself good. And if you're listening to Augustine, he's repeating that phrase in different ways again and again and again. God is himself good. And Augustine gets gets this because he has read the Bible. And the Bible repeats this again and again and again. Psalm 25 verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 119 verse 68. You are good and you do good. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. The Lord is good. So the point is easy to get here. Whatever we are to think of God, we are to think this. God is good. God is good. That is who he is. Now, we've done a lot of theology in this series, and so we can do a bit of reasoning. If God is good, so we're saying this, the scriptures assert it, we can then reason all that God is, is then good. All that God is, is then good. So just work it through with me for a few moments. We can say this, God's will is good and is always aimed at good. And what is that good God's will is always aimed at? His own goodness. Why? Because God delights and he loves his own goodness above all else. We can keep going and say this, God is immutably good, unchangeably good. Meaning his goodness can never decrease nor ever increase. He will always possess the fullness of his goodness perfectly. And because of that, he has no imperfection or any sort of mixture with evil. So the scriptures say, Psalm 92, verse 15, there is no unrighteousness in him. His power is good and thus can never be spoiled or corrupted or turned aside. To add, we can say he is infinitely and boundlessly and eternally good. His goodness is above what we can imagine or think or measure or search out. If we set our eyes upon his love or his mercy or his righteousness or as we we take in his works in this world and his many righteous judgments, we can say this, all that God is and all that God does is good for God is good. God is good. What a glorious doctrine. We can take a different tack here as we try to think about this. Perhaps you're tracking with me, but you want to lodge a few questions at me. And you say, well, just show me what good is. Can you give me a definition of what good is? Take me on a journey and bring me to a place where I can see goodness itself. You have told us that God is good, but what is good? What is good? Well, how can we answer that question? Well, the scriptures give us some help. Psalm 4, verse 6 puts it like this. It's so helpful. There are many who say, who will show us some good? People are asking, and and I think in Psalm Psalm chapter 4, it's derisively. Who will show us some good? And, And what does the psalmist say in response? It's glorious. He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. They're saying, show us some good. And what does he say? He's praying to the Lord, show me your face, O God, for that is good. For if God himself is good, then our definition of good must be then tethered to God himself and controlled by who God is. And so that's our first particular. God is himself good. And we can add a second particular. God is uniquely good. He's uniquely good. And so if you go back to Augustine's quote, the paragraph I read to you, he goes to great lengths to show us the uniqueness of God's goodness. He says, the good of all goods. He is good, but not as the things that he made are good. 
Augustine's saying is God is uniquely good. So what does this mean? Well, think about it like this. This world is full of good things. There's so many of them to think about. There are sunrises and ice cream and football and friends and laughter. There's fresh snow on the ground. There's Christmas trees and, and Christmas presents and Christmas carols. All of these things. This world is full of innumerable goods, more than we can count. And it is this way. Why? Well, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God created a world full of good things. But as we think about all of these good things, what we must do is we must draw a thick, dark line between God's goodness and all of the other things that God has made that are good. So here's an example to help us think about it. Think about ice cream. Ice cream is good. It's a wonderful good that God has given us. So what can we say about ice cream's goodness? Well, first of all, we can say ice cream is a derivative good. What does that mean? It means somebody made ice cream. Somebody had to make it good. And as we think more about that, why is ice cream good? Well, it's good because of its parts, because of cream and sugar. As we keep thinking about it, it is an only a, a proportional good. If you sit down and you eat a, a whole gallon of ice cream in one sitting, at the end of that time, when the ice cream's all gone and the pail is empty, you won't be saying that ice cream is very good anymore. Your stomach will be hurting and you'll be in agony. And it is only good contextually. If you start eating ice cream for all of your main courses, it's no longer a good. Rather, it's going to be a hazard to you, a hazard to your health. In fact, ice cream can lose its goodness. It is not permanently good. If you scoop yourself a bowl of ice cream and get distracted and leave it on the, the kitchen countertop, what will happen? Well, it won't be good anymore. It'll be melted. Or if you forget and lose that gallon of ice cream in the bottom of your freezer for a couple of years and you pull it out and you try to eat it, you say, that's not very good anymore. Is we need to draw this thick, dark line. And when we come to God, we say he is uniquely good. No one made him good. No one imparts to him goodness. No one can take his goodness away from him. He is good by his very own goodness. So as we think about it, creaturely goodness is a, a faint reflection of the great goodness of God. You can think about the, the sun and the moon. What does the moon do? It simply reflects the light of the sun. And so all created things are simply reflecting the great goodness of God himself. And the scriptures assert God's unique goodness. Perhaps the clearest place in all of scripture is in Mark chapter 10. If you remember that scene, a rich young man comes to Jesus and Jesus responds and he says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that is our testimony as Christians who have tasted God's goodness. He is uniquely good, a good above all goods. So that's our second particular. God is uniquely Good, and this brings us to our last particular. As we think about what Augustine has given us, God loves to give his goodness away. So God gives his goodness. So as we go back to Augustine, we see that he traces all good back to God. No creaturely thing is independently good. Augustine tells us good is from God. He tells us that God is the good from which everything else is good. He, he tells us that creaturely things need God so that they might become good. So we can try to imagine this in our minds. Think about Augustine as an explorer. His goal is to search out a river. He's seen the river, the water, and it is good. But where does this water come from? And so if a man wants to go search out a river and find the headwaters, what must he do? Well, he's got to get in his canoe and he's got to start paddling. And he has to start paddling in a certain direction. He's got to go upstream. 
paddling and paddling and paddling until he finds the source of that river. And what Augustine is telling us throughout this quote is that the headwaters of all good in this life is the Lord. It is God himself. Now, as we think about this, God communicates his goodness to us in a variety of ways. I want to list two of them for you. First of all, he communicates his goodness to us in the covenant of grace. When we come to Jesus and put our trust and faith in him, we find goodness. What God is doing is he makes his goodness freely available to his people so that we might be comforted, so that we might be saved, that we might have enjoyment in him. And God loves to do this. And as you read your Bible, you will find God calling to his people again and again and again, come to me for I am good. Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What is the Lord doing? He's drawing his people. I am good. Come and taste me and have me. I'm to be enjoyed. As we think about it, this is the grand prize of the Christian life. It is the best. Herman Bovink captures this so well. He, He writes on the goodness of God saying this, God is the supreme good for his creatures, the supreme good all things strive for, the fount of all good things, the good of every good, the one necessary and all-sufficient good, the end of all goods. He alone is the good to be enjoyed. While creatures are good that are to be used. So helpful. What is God doing in this world? What does he want from me? He wants me to enjoy himself above all things. He is the one necessary and all-sufficient good. He is the fount of all good, the good of every good. Creatures are creatures to be used, but God himself is the God to be enjoyed. There's a second thing that we need to think about as well with this. God communicates his goodness to us in the covenant of grace in Jesus, and he communicates his goodness to us in everything that he has made. As we think about it, we literally run into God's goodness everywhere we go. Psalm 145 verse 9 puts it like this. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And the scriptures want us to see that God is generous with his goodness. It's just bounding forth from him in everything that he has made. In fact, if you think about it, both the wicked and the righteous, both the believer and the rank unbeliever experience God's goodness in some measure. Jesus talks about this in his, in his ministry. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus says, He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's goodness is just bounding forth, overflowing in all the things that he has made. And so what does this mean? Well, it means that every good thing that we experience, every creaturely good that we find below, no matter how insignificant it is, even if it's eating a bowl of ice cream, should lead us back to God, for he is the source of all good. James 1.17 puts it like this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Good is coming down, and so what? Thanksgiving comes back up from us as we taste his goodness. So there is just a a short, small sketch of God's goodness. And so God is good. That's the doctrine. And what does that mean? It first means that God is himself good. That is who he is. Because that is who he is. That defines our definition of what goodness is. Second, he is uniquely good. There is no one good like him. We're drawing this hard, distinct line between him and everything else. And third, God is generous with his goodness. He gives us his goodness in Jesus, and he gives us his goodness in all things. We get a taste of him. But here we need to go personal. 
And so we have this sketch of God's goodness and we ask, well, what does this doctrine mean for me? Okay, God is good, but how do I go out and live in light of this doctrine and appropriate it to myself? So what I want to do is I want to go back to Psalm 73. I want to go back to the washing machine. And so I said when I started, life in this world feels often like a washing machine. It's like someone turned the spin cycle on. You get tossed in, you get spun about, you get turned around. And as a result, you start to get dizzy, you start to get disoriented. And as this keeps going on for a while, you start to question the most basic facts in the world. Who is God? Who am I? I want to think about this for a moment. Why does this happen to us? Why does this world often feel like a spin cycle in a washing machine? Well, we can certainly point to our conditions as we try to answer this question. Why does it feel like this? Well, life in this world is hard. We, we, we see Psalm 73, the evil are prospering. And the righteous man, he's getting ground down into the dirt. And this bothers us. This turns us around. It, it hurts our heads and it hurts our hearts. That's one reason why life in this world feels like a washing machine. But there's another answer that we can't ignore. And that answer is our own hearts. Why is it this world feels like a washing machine at times? The answer is this. We are all children of a couple, a mom and a dad, who ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because we are their children, what did they do? They substituted a lesser good for the greatest good of all, the glory of God. And because we are their children, our hearts are are wired towards these lesser goods in our rebellion. We prefer the lesser good, and we, we substitute the lesser good for the greater good, for the glory of God, God himself. And so why are we often dizzy? Well, this world is hard to live in. But it's not just that. It's our hearts malfunction all of the times, loving these lesser goods and not the greatest good God himself. If you go back to Psalm 73, the psalmist talks about his own heart. Look at verse three. This is so helpful. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what is causing all of the dizziness for this man? It is not just the, the conditions he's in. Something's happening with his heart. He's looking at them and his heart is envying them. And there's a judgment going on in his heart. He's looking at the goods that the wicked have, and he is envious. He wants it. He thinks that is the good. And what has he done? He has made a substitution. And because he has made that substitution, everything's starting to spin, and he's starting to get dizzy, and he's starting to question reality. And that's the same for us. It goes back to this matter of a malfunctioning heart. So what's the way out? What's the fix? What's God's grace for us here as we're in these sort of situations, dealing with this world and dealing with our own hearts? Well, the answer is the same for us as it was for the psalmist. If we want to escape the washing machine of this world and its effects, and the washing machine of our hearts and its effects, we need to really come to know the living God. We really need to know his goodness. When I use that word know, I'm using it in the deepest sense possible. Not talking about facts about God, but a a real living perception of him. Not in the abstract, but a a real tasting, a real experiencing. A Psalm 34 verse 8 type experience. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What the psalmist does is he describes what happened to him. So if you go back to Psalm 73 and look at verse 16, verse 17, he, he tells us his escape. He puts it like this. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed a wearisome task. And here's the turn. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, 
until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their ends. That was the turn for the psalmist. And so don't let anyone confuse you or tell you otherwise. At the heart of the Christian faith is having a real living encounter with the real and living God. If you want to escape this spin cycle, what has to happen? You actually have to to taste his goodness. You have to to find his grace and, and have an encounter where he changes your heart and he changes it by giving you a taste of his own goodness. That's what happened to the psalmist. That's what has to happen for us if we want to escape the spin cycle. So what does this mean for us? I want to give you a couple specifics so you're not confused about what I'm saying. So I want to ask two questions and give you two answers for application. So the first question is this, well, where are we to go to encounter this good God? You're feeling the spin cycle in your own life. You feel the dizziness and the disorientation. Where can I go to have that? We see in in, in the psalm that the psalmist went to the sanctuary of God. That's where he found the Lord, and that's where he got a taste of God's goodness. But what does that mean for us? That doesn't work for us. There isn't a sanctuary where we can go on a, a pilgrimage to and meet the Lord. Well, the answer is this. We must go to the Lord Jesus himself. He is the source of all goodness that can be tasted and enjoyed in this present life. And I want to be even more specific here to help you. Where should we go to find the Lord Jesus Christ? Should we go out searching the streets for him? Should we go on a long journey to find him, a pilgrimage somewhere? No, that won't help. Where should we go to find our Jesus? We go to find Jesus in the book, in the Bible. Do you want to see Jesus? So how do we get out of this spin cycle of washing machine? We need to encounter the real and living God. And how do we do that? We go looking for Jesus, and we look for Jesus in the book because we will find his goodness there for us. It's glorious. Second question. How can I know if I've encountered this Jesus in his goodness? So we look at verse 16, we look at verse 17, we we see what happened to the psalmist. He went into the sanctuary, boom, it clicked. How can we know if we've had a similar experience as the psalmist? Because if what I said is true, that this is at the heart of the Christian faith, having a real and living encounter with a real and living God, How can we be sure that this has happened to us? Well, the answer to these questions, not flashing lights or strange noises or a a fluttering, a fluttering feeling in your soul, a strange overcoming motion in your heart, anything like that. The evidence of this is a real, a real change. How do you know you have a real meeting with God? Your heart has changed, and the evidence is this a heart that finds God good. You want to know if you've met with the Lord before? You will actually desire God and have a taste of him and his goodness. And you will say, God is good, a good above all good. And we don't have to be confused about how this might look for our lives. What does a changed heart look like? Well, look at the ending of the psalm, verses 25 through 28. The psalmist charts it out for us. He says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But for me, moving down, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. How can we know if we've tasted God? We start to say things and think things and feel things like those verses. So I ask you this morning, can you say such things about the Lord Jesus Christ? 
The psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? Can you say something like that? Or there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is the Lord Jesus, a good above all good. Can your heart resound with those sort of words? The psalmist says, my flesh and my heart may fail. How true is that? We are so weak and our, our being just falters. Can you say something like this because you've tasted Jesus? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you say that Jesus is my portion? He is what satisfies me and keeps me. And so as you look at your life to come, you say this. But for me, it is good to be near God. It is good to be near God because I have made the Lord God my refuge. And I will tell of all of his works. Can you say such things of Jesus with your heart? Because that's the evidence of meeting with Jesus in the book. Your heart desires him and wants him. And you taste something of him and you say, he is good, a good above all goods. And so let's pray now and ask God for such a heart as that. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is so good and rich and helpful. We need it. We cannot live without it. And we plead now that you do a great work of grace in all of our hearts, that we would taste the goodness of Jesus, that we would long to taste more of him. Only you can do this. You're the God who changes hearts, and we plead, would you change our hearts as your word works on us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.